0: In your bulletin this morning, there is listed a passage of Scripture, a praise passage. It's in the very bottom of the bulletin inside under the Week at a Glance. I want us to stand together and we'll say this praise to the Lord. And prayerfully, would you stand? Hopefully, um, in the future, we'll be able to memorize these words and it'll become a part of our praise to God. After me. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Amen. The text of this sermon is from the book of Second Chronicles. That's an Old Testament book. And you'll find it by starting over in the Old Testament, say, if you can find Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. Samuel or First and Second Kings. You keep working to the right, and you'll find it. The chapters are verse uh, chapters thirty-three and thirty-four. Of course, time will not not allow us to read the uh, the two chapters, so I won't read any of it. Just I want you to hold the place there, and um, know that um, this message. Um, comes from the 33 and 33rd and 34th chapter. may need just a little more volume. God laid on my heart a few um, weeks ago to begin to pray for revival in my own life. I was um, at a meeting, a religious service and I heard the preacher talk about the need of revival and felt, a deep conviction about a personal revival in my own life and about the need of revival in the church and in the land. And so I started preaching about a month ago uh, sermons concerning revival. Revival, by the way, is just the renewed zeal for God in the life and heart of a man or a person. Revival is allowing God to do in our midst what we can't do ourselves or something for which we cannot take the credit. It's a miraculous thing. And I believe that God stands in the wings just desiring or waiting to give revival. We're going to get this volume set down just a little bit. Got to ring. As a matter of fact, Charles Finney, I think, was right when he said that that we can have revival anytime we want it. And God desires, He stands in the wings, um, ready to do that thing in our midst that we cannot take the credit for. Now, it would not be um, fair, I would be remiss, if I talked about the history of revival and did not share with you concerning the revival that took place under Josiah in the Old Testament. It's interesting that this revival began with a 16-year-old boy. He became king when he was 18. When he was eight. And eight years after he became, became king, he began to search for the Lord. He began to desire God. And in the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge the land, and revival began. Um A revival that shook an entire population began with a young man 16 years of age. And so uh, it just might be that when we talk about revival, we need to zero in on the young people and the college students. We might even need to talk about how to have revival on a college campus or how to have a revival on a high school campus. For it's not... um, Uh, unusual that revival begins with the young people. As a matter of fact, when you study the history of revival, you'll find that there has hardly ever been a revival that did not begin or was not fanned by an enthusiasm among young people. Now, I know the uh, normal response, perhaps, from both young and old is this. What can young people do? What can college students do to make... A change in the world, a revolutionary change in life. In fact, James Stewart says that, that if we, just as if young people would just begin to make God as exciting in their life as their, as their athletics or their uh, fraternities, if they would just begin to make God as exciting in their life and cease the boredom, he said people would begin to fill our churches to the overflowing. The common response is, what can we do as young people, perhaps? I mean, we're just kind of holding our head above the water and struggling against the pressure of our peers. I mean, what can we do to bring revival? Well, as a matter of fact, God throughout history has sought to use young people, youth, to accomplish His purpose in the world to interject into history those great awakenings that literally changed its course. As a matter of fact, if there had not been young people available to God in the history of the Christian church, there probably would never have been an awakening. I want to talk this morning about those prerequisites to revival. I mean, the criterion that's always criteria, that's always there. Those... Principles that God has always used before revival comes. I want to see this morning those things that are always present in every spiritual revival. Every moving of God in time, without exception, has these five principles. I'm just going to have time to deal with two this morning. And I've asked the Lord to give us a crowd, the same people for tonight, because it takes two sermons to deal with this. And I want to look at those prerequisites to revival, to the moving of God in time. They're always there in every revival. But before we do that, we need to take a look at Josiah, the man and his times. The 33rd chapters, 33rd and 34th chapters of Second Chronicles describe the times in which this young man lived, 16-year-old boy and they describe the times as the worst times and the best times by the time he became king israel was the all that was left of israel was the southern kingdom of judah the 10 northern tribes had long before gone into captivity and israel was ruled by a succession of good and bad kings and in the 33rd chapter, we are introduced to two of the, of the worst of the worst. There was Manasseh who became king and reigned for 55 years. He was an evil man. As a matter of fact, Manasseh has the distinction of being the worst king that ever ruled any nation in the history of the world. Verse 9 of chapter 33 says that he was worse than any of the heathen kings that God destroyed, and he reigned for so long, 55 years. It would be like Hitler being ruler of the world for 55 years. He died and his son Ammon became king. The only good thing about it is that he just reigned for two years. He was so despicable and corrupt that his own servants conspired and killed him in his own house. And he and his father instituted in Israel idolatry and spiritism and witchcraft, and they erected these high places, these altars to Baal, the pagan gods. And they encouraged the people to sacrifice, human sacrifices, to the pagan god Moloch. And so even Manasseh, his own children, were offered on sacrifices of fire. So all over Israel, from one time to another, you would see babies offered burning on fires of sacrifice to the pagan god Moloch. It was a terrible time. Judah was in a bad shape. It was a time of witchcraft and spiritism and sorcery and immorality and idolatry. And the people forgot the Lord. The Scripture says that when God spoke to His people, they didn't even hear Him. And they were materialistic through and through. And into that culture and society was born a king who was eight years old. Now, what could an eight-year-old boy do about that? I mean, this guy will literally be devoured by the heathen and the pagans of his time. What can an eight-year-old boy do to change the course of that? But something happened when he was 16, and he began to seek the Lord, and he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. He tore down the high places, the altars that had been erected to the Ashram and to Baal. And he began to burn up and and, and break down the images, the, the carved images and the molten images, and He ground them into dust and spread them over the graves of the people who instituted them, and a revival that shook the entire population began. Now, what kind of a man was Josiah? I think if we can find the answer to that, what kind of a man was he, we'll discover the kind of person that God uses... And I don't suppose there's ever been a revival where God has not used someone as a catalyst. I, I, I hold on to that truth in my own heart. I don't suppose there's ever been a revival that God has not used someone as a catalyst. Now, what kind of person was Josiah that God could use as, use as a catalyst to change his campus, to change his community, to change his world? Well, there are three things about him. Number one, he was sold out to God. Therefore, he couldn't be bought. Do you have a price? Let me confess this morning, this might be a good time to confess our sins. Let me confess something. One of the great difficulties of my life has always been at the point of a human desire. I mean... If Satan ever gets his foot on my neck and and, and defeats me, it's usually at a point of some human desire. I've never really uh, uh, been thrilled at not being liked. As a matter of fact, I'm somewhat secure, and I don't do backflips over doing something that will cause me to be rejected or unliked, either in the church or in the community. So I'm going to confess to you. A lot of my decisions have been made on the basis of what I thought people thought about me or would think about me. Now, I know that that doesn't relate to you at all, perhaps. But a lot of my decisions have been made on the basis of what I thought people thought about me or would think about me. You know, and a few years ago, I came to this kind of decision in my own life. Am I here to please God or am I here to please men? Do I want to please God or do I want to please men? Now, Josiah was a man sold out to God, therefore he couldn't be bought. He had this big sign around his neck that said, Sold. And so he began to tear down these idols and he ground them into powder and he stirred up the the wrath of those who were opposed to that. For when you go to messing with people's idols, you better have your insurance paid up. But it didn't matter to Josiah. He was sold out to God. I believe that God uses young people and adults to bring about change, just those people who are sold out to Him and cannot be bought. Second, he had a heart for God. Now the scripture says that this young man desired the Lord. He wanted the Lord. He wanted his face. He wanted his desire. He wanted his, ha- his smile. He had a heart for God. I agree with Adrian Rogers. Hear this. When he said, I don't know how much of God you have, but I know that you have as much of God as you want. How much do you want God? God. I mean, how important to you this morning is it that you have the smile of God, the approval of God, the joy of God, the blessing of God, the will of God? And when he began to desire God, he began to be sensitive to what God was saying. And so he didn't consult the consensus. He just made his announcements and went on. And he discovered God's Word. It's amazing how many times at the heart of revival is the rediscovery of the Word of God. He had a heart for God and he had an ear for God and he had a desire for the Word of God. And when he found the Scriptures that had been buried under the the disarray of his nation, he tore his clothes and repented that the people had lived apart from the Word of God. He had a heart for God. The third thing about him was that he was willing to demand a showdown. He was willing to demand a showdown. And so he said to the people, We're going to tear down the idols, and we're going to wreck the ashram, and we're going to seek the Lord. Now, isn't it incredible this morning? Listen to me. Isn't it an incredible thought? And Lee and I were just sharing this as I sat down here. In fact, I had plan B prepared for this morning. I had sermon number two ready uh, because I didn't know how many college students and high school students and the rest of us would be here. Isn't it, isn't it incredible to think that somebody in this room this morning might be a Josiah, 16 years of age, 18 years of age, 19, who decides to sell out for God, who has a heart for God, who is ready for a showdown. He's going to walk God's way and revival begins that will change this campus that's out here north, that will revolutionize Durant High School, that would change an entire athletic team or a fraternity or sorority, that would revolutionize a community. Somebody here saying, I will be a Josiah. A preacher stood up to preach. And Dwight L. Moody was there, this ignorant, simple man. And he said, the world has not yet seen what God can do with a man who is totally sold out to him. And Dwight L. Moody sat there and said, I'll be that man. And the world saw what happens when that happens. Right now, we're going to come to the prerequisites, those criteria that are always present Revival. Just There's five of them. I just want to deal with two of them. Hang right in here and we'll get them. Number one. God's people must recognize the need for revival. And you say, well, that's pretty simple. We already do that. Yes, that's true. If I took a poll this morning, like I've done on Sunday mornings just for fun, and ask you, do you feel, like you, do, do you feel that there is a need for revival in America? Everybody holds up their hand. Do you feel like you have, need a revival in your church? Everybody holds up their hand. We all agreed that we need revival. That's not the need recognition I'm talking about. There's a difference between, listen to me, there's a difference between admitting a need and being so gripped that I do something about it. There's a vast difference. There's a big difference between saying, I need God, I need to see the evidence of God, I can't stand any longer going in my own strength. I need the work of God. There's a difference between admitting that and being so gripped by the urgency of it that we do something about it. Loftus says, listen to this, he said there's a vast difference between isness and oughtness. That sounds like somebody from Monday, Texas would say that. There's a real difference between isness and oughtness. You know what he meant? He said a person can say, sure, there is a need, but it's different than a person who says, there ought to be revival. There's a vast difference. I mean, you could say to Junior, Junior, don't you need a bath? And Junior looks at himself, he's completely covered with a terraform. Filthy. He said, Junior, don't you need... Yes, I need a bath. He's not going to take a bath without some encouragement. I need to lose 40 pounds, I'll admit that. But I don't know if I'm really gripped with the urgency of that need to do anything about it. Now watch this. By recognizing the need of revival, I mean that there are at least a few of us, at least a few Christians who are so gripped enough with the urgency of the current need to shake this community to to move to this awakening. They want revival so badly that they say, I'm going to paint the house or get off the ladder. I'm going to do something about it. It's more than just wringing our hands and saying we have a need. I've had young people say that to me. Oh, we're in bad shape. There's a difference in wringing our hands and doing something about it. For to say, I believe there is a need and do nothing about it is a sure sign that you don't see the need. The scripture saw shows us that Jesus came into the temple and He saw what was going on. Now watch this. He saw these money changers and these crooks and these thieves and He saw the desecration of His house and He was moved by it. He was incensed by it, he was aflame. And he took a card and he drove them out. You know the story. He overturned the money changers and he drove out the thieves and the crooks. He did more than just wring his hands. He was gripped by the urgency of it. And John, listen to this, and John gave a little editorial about what he saw when he saw Jesus do that. And this is his editorial. The scripture says that John remembered Jesus said, the zeal for the house of the Lord consumes me. Now it's interesting that when when John watched Jesus drive out those money changers, he remembered that passage in Isaiah, the zeal of the house of the Lord grips me. What grips you? I mean, what consumes you? What possesses you? Most of us are not gripped by anything other than just our own pleasures and our own comfort. To be gripped with the need of revival means that I'm going to get beyond where I am and become personally involved in the awakening that God has promised. First prerequisite. People recognize the need. Second prerequisite. Now this is the tough one is to humble yourselves before the Lord. John Mott, the great young missionary, he was was a teenager when he surrendered to missions. John Mott said, with regard to our lives, there are two viewpoints. One is, this is my life, I can live it as I please. The other is, my life belongs to another, and that other to whom my life belongs is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Now I think I need to clear up a couple of misconceptions about humility. Humility, to humble yourself before God, does not mean that you think less of yourself than you ought. It doesn't get you any points to go around beating yourself you know, with a humble stick or let somebody cram a humble pie in your face and eat humble pie all the time. It doesn't mean that at all. Nor does it mean that there are some people who are just humble. It's their nature to be humble and others are not. And so that's just the way it goes. Listen, humility is an imparted gift of grace. And any one of us who is a child of God can have this imparted gift, the quality of humility, come to be a part of our lives. Now this is what being humble before God means. Listen to this. It means being so preoccupied with God that I see my life in relationship to Him. I must say that again. To humble yourself before God means that I become so preoccupied with God that I see my life in relationship to Him. I see that I'm, a cre- I'm the created, but I see Him as the Creator. I see myself as alone before Him, unworthy. But I see myself in His eyes as worthy because of what Christ did for me. I see myself in my own weakness, unable to do anything. But I see myself in Him being able to do all things. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that thrilling? I see myself as being unable to do anything, but in Him able to do all things. All of my life I live within a, with a God reference, with a, with a God perspective. It means that I learn to say, God, I can't do it, but You never said I could. You can, and You promised that You would. Now, now, now listen carefully. Humbling ourselves before God means... That I am willing to go anywhere, do anything, say anything in obedience to Christ in order to please Him. Are you humbled before God? Are you humbled before God? Now I think I can give you, and I got to hurry. It looks like I may not even get two points to this thing. I want to give you an Old Testament illustration. Just listen to it. You don't have to turn. Listen to this says, and and God is talking to His people who are captive, and, and they've been taken captive, and they're out in Babylon. And the amazing thing, that 29th chapter of Jeremiah, the amazing thing is that God says, I took you out into Babylonian captivity in order that I might cause you to seek me. I took you out there in order that you might seek me. For that's what God wants more than anything, that you seek Him. And this is what He says, listen. And you will seek Me, and you will find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Now I need to tell you what He he was saying there. He was saying three things. He was saying, you're going to find me. You're going to see me active. You're going to see me at work. You're going to find me when you search for me exclusively. Now, they were in captivity. He didn't say, seek freedom. They were distressed, and He did not say, seek comfort. They were in trouble, and He did not say, seek deliverance. He said, seek me. You will find me. When you seek me exclusively exclusively when you seek me that means two things it means that I will seek for no one else nothing else I'm not going to seek joy, I'm not going to seek gifts, I'm not going to seek wealth I'm going to seek the Lord no one else it means secondly that I'll be satisfied with nothing less Now let me tell you what's happening. Let me bare my heart just a minute. What has happened in our time is that we have settled for less than God. We have settled for less than God. We have settled for less than God's will. We have settled for less than God. Amen? I mean, we've settled for religion and we've settled for church attendance, and we've settled for being good and doing good deeds. We've settled for less than God. He said, you'll find me when you seek for me exclusively, meaning that you'll seek nothing more than God and settle for nothing less. It means the second thing. It means that we will seek for Him with determination... I'm determined that I'll find the Lord. And it means, thirdly, that I'll seek for Him in desperation. I will seek for Him exclusively. I will seek Him desperately. And I will seek Him with determination. And how desperate you are for God will determine how determined you are to find Him. I hope it doesn't happen in our time like it happened in this chronicle in this day in Jeremiah's day, that God takes us out into wildernesses of Babylon's in order that we will be desperate for Him. One day a young girl came into my office, a college student, and she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I am, I am, I am pregnant. And she said, My parents have kicked me out. And the, the husband has, just laughs at me. And she said, I drove around your church seven times before I got up enough nerve to come in here. I said, well, why did you come in here? And she said, I was desperate. And I said, what is your desperation? Are you, do you want somebody to help you have that baby, support, take you to some place? Get an abortion? What, what is the desperation? I was just asking her. She said, I am desperate for God. Now, Jeremiah said, You will find me when you seek for me exclusively, desperately, and with determination. That's what it means to humble before the Lord. And Isaiah the prophet and God speaking to him said, Thus saith the Lord the high and exalted one who dwells on high and holy places, listen, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. You know what that says? It says that God does not revive proud people. He revives the poor and lowly and the contrite of heart when we let Him be the Lord of our life and we, have, we allow Him that high and holy position that He wants in your life. Not second place, not second rate, but when you let God be God, He said, I will move into your life and I will revive your spirit. God doesn't revive proud people. If you've got some bitterness in your heart concerning some mistake of the past somebody's made, you can forget about revival. If you've got some resentment in your life, in your heart, that you're not willing to confess and get right, you can forget about revival. This church can forget about revival until we have a contrite and lowly heart. I'm going to quit with this because I know the time is gone. Suppose you invited someone to stay in your home. Come and live in your house. Come and, come and visit. Just spend a week with us. And they came for a visit. And you said, now, I want you to know you're my honored guest. Uh, I'm glad you're here. You can have any, your, your access to anything you need. This is your house while you're here. You just make yourself at home. And one day you walked in and caught them going through your private papers. I mean, they were in the lockbox. And they were looking over the little letters that you kept and secret things and the private personal papers. And, and you might kind of, you know, gasp. Say, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, could I help you there? And They'd say, well, no, I was just looking through your personal papers. Uh, I thought it might be interesting, you know, to read this stuff. And you might say, well, really, uh, that's kind of personal, really. I, I wish you wouldn't um, mess around in my personal, private matters. And the guest would say, oh, oh well, I, I misunderstood. I'm sorry. I thought you said that everything here, I could, I, could, I had access to everything you said, come in and make, make, make myself at home. And immediately, the relationship would be strained. Uh, oh, by the way, um, when the Lord moved into your life, did you tell Him just to make Himself at home? Did you, did you say that He had access to every little closet and every secret thought and every personal relationship? Uh, Is it possible that the strain that has come between you and the Lord is that you have those things that are not yet yielded to Him? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we feel the burden of this this sermon upon our own heart the urgency of it Lord the on the, the admission God of our own need the awareness that in our pride we've stiffened our neck and have not bowed the neck and the knee and the heart to God Oh Lord, we want now more than we want life. We want Your life. In Jesus' name. Now wherever you are, would you listen? Out on television, there's a lot of people watching this morning. Would you listen? Why not just come this morning and bring everything you've got and give it to God? Your pride, your ministry, your fears. Your desires, your ambitions, your plans, your dreams, your temptations, your joys. Bring those things to God and lay them at His feet and tell Him, Dear Lord, I'm humbling my life before You and my deepest desire is that You rule And reign in me. Tell him. I'm going to lay claim to your promise. To revive me. And my friends. And if you need to come publicly. Declaring your faith in Christ. Maybe in your home you've trusted the Lord. You need to come. Until you humble yourself before God and others. And before men. Doesn't mean a lot. Maybe you need to come for rededication of your life to join the church. What is God's desire for you today? That surely should be your desire. So while we stand and our choir sing, we invite you to come right now, would you?